I'd like to talk for a couple of minutes about um, the theme of I Am Not Alone. Over the last number of Sunday evenings, we have been looking at a series of topics and followed that basic kind of approach. The first one was I Am Accepted, which was really looking at the whole issue of how it is that a person can know that they're a Christian because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Uh, We looked at I Am Delivered, the way in which a Christian's relationship as a human being with the whole issue of what it means to be a sinner is transformed because of Jesus Christ. And this evening's theme is I Am Not Alone. And um, it's really looking at some of the things that the Bible has to say about God's gift of the Holy Spirit to the followers of Jesus Christ. The context uh, in which I'm looking at this, obviously this evening, is Katie's baptism and our celebration together of the Lord's Supper. So I want to set the theme of I am not alone in that context. And I hope it will be an encouragement to Katie, um, who all alone will be climbing onto an aeroplane, well, with three or four hundred other people in a day or two's time. But going back to home and yet going back to a whole new situation and having to, to think about how your life is going to shape up in the future. I suppose I'm showing my age if I refer you back to the Home Alone film. Was it Collie McCulkin? How many of you were born then? Oh, yes, yes, quite a few of you were. Sometimes you need to be careful in this place when you make reference to things. A lot of people weren't born when they happened anymore. It's my age, not your fault. Um, but the Home Alone film was just one of those great films where the whole idea of the fear of being alone was just taken and played with, uh, and played with in a really very imaginative kind of way. The, the nightmare of having to deal with thieves and crooks when you're alone as a kid and which of us as a kid uh, found on our own from time to time didn't have such wacky ideas and dreams and thoughts of what we would do with the baddies if we got our hands on them. But being alone or going solo is always a bit nerve-wracking. It's like when learning to ride a bike. I have very clear memories of going alone when my friend Ian Drysdale had lent me his bike and was helping me learn how to ride a bike and I thought he was behind me and he wasn't. There was a dog behind me chasing me and attempting to bite me. It was a very difficult experience and one I have never quite forgotten. It's the same when you're training for a job or training to do something. There comes a stage when you go it alone. Some of you who are medics here, we watch you with great hilarity come August every year as we watch you appear with fear written all over your faces when all of a sudden you are going alone. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar with what happens with medics who are trained and all the rest, keep out of hospital at the beginning of August at all costs. It's the killing fields. It's known as the killing fields because all the junior doctors have disqualified and they haven't really much of a clue of what they're doing. And if the nurses weren't there, you really would be in deep trouble. And that's what they tell me. I'm not saying that. But that idea of having been equipped for something and having been prepared for something, but actually having to go alone is really quite a challenge in many areas of of life. I remember my first night alone in Africa. You can read all about it on the church website if you dig deep enough. It's in there somewhere. I was visiting Nigel and Carolyn, and we were uh, in Danja in Niger. And if you don't know where that is, Google it. And you may find this little spot in the bottom end of the Sahara Desert. And my first night on my own in Africa was one of the most frightening nights of my life. It is an experience that is indelibly imprinted on my mind. I was a quivering wreck the whole night as I listened to the sounds and the noises of Africa on the tin roof above me and in the fields around me or the desert around me and everywhere else. When Jesus' disciples were getting to grips with the idea that he kept talking about going to his father and leaving them, you can understand that there was an anxiety on their part about going it alone, about being left without him, 
while they really struggled to understand what he meant and while they struggled to understand that this could actually happen to them because their ambitions for Jesus were very, very different from the idea of him going to the cross and dying on the cross. Nevertheless, as he talked about this, it was something that they really had to try and deal with. And that's the context in which we hear those wonderful words from Jesus in John's Gospel when he says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. And when he's speaking to them in John chapter 14, uh, in verses 16 and 17, he says to them, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And I want to think for a little bit this evening about the implications of that statement. He lives with you and will be in you. And how it is that the Christian can be confident that in seeking to live the Christian life with its many challenges and the many challenges of simply being a human being, we are not left alone. I am not alone. Throughout this series we've been basing what we've been uh, looking at in the book of Romans and I want to read a few verses to you from Romans chapter 8. If you want to follow, there are Bibles in the pew in front of you. And you'll find the reading on page 1134, page 1134. And there's a a few aspects of this passage which are really very helpful in us getting a sense of what this actually means, what Jesus was saying to his disciples and how it actually works out in practice. In the previous chapter, in chapter 7 and verse 6, uh, Paul says, By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit. And what he's really saying there is that when a person becomes a Christian, they can begin to serve God under the direction and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you simply struggle to do on your own. You're not left simply as an orphan to get on with it. And in chapter 8, in verse 2 at the very beginning of chapter 8, Paul begins to open up this whole theme of what it means to have life in the Spirit, to know the Spirit of God at work within you. He says in verse 1, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Another way of talking about the controlling power of the Holy Spirit. It's not that we as Christians are controlled by rules and regulations. Um, That's not what Jesus died for. He died that we might know freedom and that we might know the gift and the blessing of the Spirit of God within us, leading us and guiding us. And Paul tells us three important facts about what it means to be led uh, by the Holy Spirit or to know the work of the Spirit in a person's life. In verses 4 to 7, He talks about the controlling influence in the life of the Christian uh, as being the Holy Spirit. Verse 4. So he condemns sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law may be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. And in that section, one of the points that he's making is that the Christian is uh, controlled, guided, directed by the work and the grace and power of the Spirit of God within our lives. We need to keep in step with the Spirit. 
But that influence, that controlling influence, is present in the life of the Christian. In verses 9 to 11, he makes the point that a Spirit of God actually does live in a Christian, and if the Spirit of God does not live in, the, in a Christian, then they can't really consider themselves a Christian. Verses 9 to 11, uh, where he says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. There's a whole new dynamic at work in the life of the person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ and seeks to follow him. And that dynamic is the work of the spirit of God. And that's true for every Christian, or you're not a Christian. And then he has a, a number of things that he says later on in the chapter about how the Spirit of God actually aids or helps the Christian. And I've highlighted a few of them, which I think you can see on the screen there. Uh, verses 15, 16, 26, and 27, if you just want to look at those. In verse 15 he says, You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit gives us confidence to address God, not simply as some remote power in the back of the universe, but as Father begins to build that relationship for us and give us the intimacy of that relationship. Uh, verse 16, uh, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. It's part of the way in which we grow in confidence and understanding that we are actually accepted by God. Helps us in our weaknesses. In verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. So in two ways, the Spirit is at work both in helping us in our challenges and in our weaknesses, and also in interceding for us. So these are some of the things that the Bible says about the presence of the Holy Spirit, the reality of the Holy Spirit in the life and work of a Christian. Of course, as Christians, we very often choose to live differently. We choose to live according to our own rules and our own regulations. We choose to live according to our own desires and pleasures. And what Paul is contrasting here is the nature of life when we choose to do that and the nature of life when we keep in step with the Spirit of God, recognizing the gift that God has given us in the comforter of the Holy Spirit and seeking to know his power at work within us. So there are three things I just want to say on the back of this passage in Romans chapter 8 um, that we can think about this evening. You're not alone. I am not alone. The presence of the Holy Spirit means both promise, a personal encounter, and all pervasive. That promise should bring comfort and confidence. The personal nature of it should mean we sense that we are included, we are not isolated. And the pervasive nature of it means that all aspects of our life are touched. First of all, to think for a moment just about the promise of the Spirit with us, as Paul talks about here, as Jesus talks about in John 14. There was one writer speaking, writing on this subject who, who said this. He said, the typical relationship between Christians and the Holy Spirit in today's church is too often like that between the husband and wife in a bad marriage. They live under the same roof. The husband makes constant use of his wife's services, but fails to communicate with her, recognize her presence, or celebrate his relationship with her. There are many Christians who are very uncertain about the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. 
Sometimes it's because people hear Jesus say in John chapter 16, which he does in verse 13 to 14, that the Holy Spirit will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will take from what is mine and make it known to you. And as they hear those words, they expect that the only evidence of the Spirit at work in their lives will really be a deepening understanding or knowledge about Jesus. They understand that to mean that the Spirit will not manifest himself. He will simply help you know more about Jesus. That, I think, is a bit unbalanced and unbiblical. Um, Many of our hymns, for example, in our hymn books and song books, um, will have themes in them which directly address the Spirit of God. Some of the older hymns, like from the 14th century, Come Down, O Love Divine, a reference to the Holy Spirit. A 16th century hymn, Come Holy Spirit, God and Lord, one of the hymns that was written by Martin Luther, actually. Hymns by Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley, which speak very directly of the work of the Holy Spirit. And we sing those hymns sometimes. And we don't have a problem about singing those hymns, but in terms of thinking about what's going on in us as people and God's work in us as people, we're sometimes very, we find it very hard to relate to the idea of the presence of the Spirit within us or to relate to the Holy Spirit. There's another extreme and another danger, and the other extreme is to believe that you can't have any confidence that the Holy Spirit lives within you if you're not demonstrating the most uh, excessive behavior uh, or gifts and abilities. And for some people, there's a need for physical manifestations of the Holy Spirit at work within. Otherwise, they don't really feel any assurance that the Spirit of God is at work within their lives. And that seems to me to be the other extreme of this, because Jesus doesn't talk about the need for physical demonstration. He just talks about it being a reality. And Paul doesn't talk about the need for physical demonstrations of the presence of the Spirit. He just talks about the reality of the presence of the Spirit in the life of the Christian and the way that changes attitudes and thoughts and behavior. The reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit is based on the promise of Scripture. And if you're looking for evidence of the work of the Spirit in your own life or in anyone else's life, then the place to look really is Galatians chapter 5 where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit and talks about love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control where those things are present. And as they grow and develop, we see the evidence of the work of the Spirit of God in the life of the Christian. The manifestations, physical manifestations, can be counterfeit. You can create them yourself. They can be created in all kinds of ways. Legalistic manifestations of being very uh, rule-keeping, rule-orientated in your expression of Christianity can be very hypocritical. All of these things need to be avoided because they're not any evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. They're not any comfort. They don't build any confidence. It's the promise of Christ that gives us confidence and comfort that God has not abandoned you, that you are not alone. Jesus does not mess us about. He makes it very clear we have not been left as orphans. The gift of the Spirit has been given to us. Paul develops exactly the same theme. And it is simply the promise of Scripture which gives us comfort and confidence. Yes, we look to see the Spirit of God at work in our lives. We look to see the Spirit of God at work in the lives of other people and in situations from time to time. And that is right and that is proper. But the comfort and the confidence comes from the promise of God's Word. Not from physical manifestation. Not from something that we can engender from within ourselves or point to and say, oh, yes, that definitely proves it. It's there because Jesus says so. It's there because Scripture says so. And that should be our comfort. 
I think that's important because we all go through phases in life, including Christians. And Katie, you'll be the same as all the rest of us. There are times when we struggle. There are times when we're not sure. There are times when we look at ourselves and the quality of our lives as Christians. And we sort of feel to ourselves or think to ourselves, well, if other people could actually see what I am really like, if other people could see what is on my monitor in my head at this particular minute in time, they would not be at all impressed with me as a person. How can I be confident that I am a Christian? How can I be confident that the Spirit of God is still with me? It will never be a confidence that can adequately be based on your feelings or your performance or physical manifestations. You've got to take the word of God at face value. You've got to hold on to that promise and it is that promise that gives confidence and comfort. Secondly, the thing that strikes me about this is that this is a tremendously uh, personal thing for us as people, the reality of it. Um, Alice comes here and makes announcements Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And for the very best of reasons, sometimes you don't hear them. Sometimes I don't hear them. And that's not always for the best of reasons, if I'm being absolutely honest. Sorry, Alice. But sometimes it's because we think it's for somebody else. Somebody else is listening to that information. Somebody else needs to know that information, not me. And sitting here listening to this talk about the Holy Spirit and the confidence and comfort that comes because of the promise of Scripture... The danger is that you could be sitting here thinking, well, that's for somebody else. That's for better Christians than me. Uh, Or that's what other people need to hear. This is actually about your life if you're a Christian. Jesus' promise to the disciples was very specific and very definite. He said, I would not leave you as orphans. And we see the work of the Spirit of God in their lives as they struggle over many things. We see the work of the Spirit of God in the life of Jesus. And if you turn back to Luke chapter 4, um, just a little bit further back from Romans where you were, it's on page um, 1030 of the copies of the Bible in the pew. You see that in the opening section of Luke chapter 4 where it begins to talk about um, Jesus' ministry, um, that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. He is led by the Holy Spirit, in verse 1. And in verse 14, he works in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. And then verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of God was very real in the life of the person Jesus of Nazareth. And you and I should expect that that is true in our lives. This is not just abstract stuff. This is not just stuff for somebody else or for missionaries or for spiritual Christians or something like that. This is for us. Luke 10 talks about how Jesus was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. There was a relationship going on there so that when Jesus speaks about or speaks to his disciples about not leaving them as orphans but asking that the Spirit would be given to them as well, he knows what he's speaking about. Peter in the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 when he preaches, preaches full of the Holy Spirit. When he speaks before the Sanhedrin, he is full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen the martyr, as he preaches to the people who are gathered around and explains to them who Jesus was, is spoken of as being full of the Holy Spirit. Philip, one of the evangelists, one of the apostles, is led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads the church in Antioch to commission Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas themselves in Acts 13 are led by the Holy Spirit in their work. Why should it be any different in your case? Well, you're tempted to say maybe, well, they were apostles and I'm not. Well, remember the story of Peter and Cornelius. Peter was invited to go to the home of a Roman centurion, which was well out of order in his day. 
And Peter recognizes, what is it that he recognizes? He comes to recognize in his own words, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, these pagans who were not from a Jewish background, who had never seen Jesus, um, who hadn't followed Jesus, who knew nothing really of the gospel. These pagans too have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And that's why Paul teaches, because people are in danger of missing this, that's why he teaches in 1 Corinthians 12, that to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To each one, to each person. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And it's in this context that the Spirit of God is at work. When Paul writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 3 in verses 14 to 19, he, he, he tells them how he prays for them. And he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Who were these Christians that he prayed for? That he expected that this would happen? We have no idea. We do not know their names. There's a fair chance that a very large number of them were slaves. Were not free people or skilled people in any kind of way at all. But Paul is confident that the Spirit of God will be at work in their hearts. Deepening their knowledge of Christ. Filling them with the power of Christ. This is personal. You are included as a Christian in this thing. You are not left isolated. And the third thing that strikes me about this idea of the gift of the Holy Spirit being given to Christians is the pervasive nature of it. The Spirit of God is within you and nothing is left untouched. However much we might like to think we do at times or however much we might pretend we do, Christians do not live in two different worlds. We do not live in a secular world and a holy world. There really is only one world. The tendency for us is to behave as if there are two. And we have one set of rules for church and when we're being religious. And we have another set of rules for everyday life. And in here, you wouldn't dream of shouting at each other. But in a different context, we could lose our temper very easily and very quickly. And yet as Christians, we know there's not two worlds. There's only one world. Our ethical behavior in church may be different from our behavior in business. And it shouldn't be. The person we are in a church meeting may not be the person we are in the lecture room or in the reception room or wherever else. And that shouldn't be. The reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit means that all aspects of our life and living are shared by the Spirit of God. The deciding factor in what is right and appropriate is not location. It's not where you happen to be at any particular time but the knowledge and the recognition of the abiding presence of the Spirit of God within us. The psalmist understood this. Um, Psalm 139, one of the great psalms of the book of Psalms. The psalmist says in verse 7 of Psalm 139, Where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And both for his comfort 
and for his challenge, the psalmist recognizes that there is no part of life and human experience that is devoid of God and the presence and knowledge of the Holy Spirit. Peter identifies the sin of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. This was a couple who had sold some land, which they were free to do, and they brought the money, or some of the money, from the land, but they pretended to the church that they were giving it all. And the Spirit of God identifies this to Peter, and Peter names it as what they're doing. He says, why have you lied to us? You could have kept the money. That was perfectly reasonable. It was yours to do with what you want. But why did you lie? Why did you come into church? And his point is, you didn't lie to us. You lied to the Spirit of God. And a judgment falls on them, which leaves the church uh, in a real sense of the awe of the power of God and the all-pervasive presence of the Holy Spirit. No part of my life, no part of your life, is ever lived in isolation from the Spirit of God. That brings tremendous comfort. It also brings tremendous challenge. Paul says in Ephesians, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So, read your Bibles every day, pray three times every day. No, that's not actually what he says. So, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every kind of malice. That's the connection that he makes between having the gift of the Spirit, the knowledge of the Spirit of God within us, and what that means in practice. The ordinary things like bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander and malice. It's a frightening thing. And I have to confess I am embarrassed by this. My embarrassment comes uh, because it's one of the key reasons why I would be tempted to doubt the reality of the Spirit's presence. It's more convenient to doubt the reality of the Spirit of God's presence than to come to terms with the shocking truth that the Spirit of God is with me when I sin. That's a problem that needs to be addressed. Seeing the world and my relationships in the world and with people through my Father's eyes, and knowing the abiding presence of the Spirit in all that I do. You, Katie, are not alone. There are people here this evening with whom you work and who you know. And just as you'll have Trevor and Roy with you in the tank in a few minutes, uh, which will help you know you're not alone when you get wet, so you also should know and draw comfort from the presence of the Holy Spirit with you, particularly as you leave us and go uh, to pick up life again back in America. You can, Katie, expect that reality of the presence of the Spirit to manifest itself in your life in evidence of the Spirit's work. And you can rightly presume that there are no limitations to that. God, by his Spirit, can do amazing things in your life as he can do in the lives of all those who seek to follow Jesus Christ. Because the promise is you are not alone. And it's not just the promise for Katie. It is the promise for all who put their hope and their confidence in Jesus Christ. And that promise should bring comfort and confidence, the comfort to seek to live the Christian life, the confidence to know that you are not abandoned by God and that God knows you far more thoroughly than you know yourself. And knowing you as thoroughly as he does, still he gives the gift of his Holy Spirit. It should help you also in terms of just that sense of when you feel isolated, knowing that you are actually included in the family of God. Because while at times we can be physically isolated, and isolated for all kinds of other reasons, from people, from fellowship, from an understanding of what it means to be a Christian and belonging, the promise 
of the presence of the Spirit of God within us allows us to know that we are included. And there is both that comfort and challenge in knowing that that presence of the Holy Spirit is all-pervasive. Draw comfort from that and draw the challenge of it as well in how you choose to live and the decisions that you make in life. I am not alone. You may feel very alone, but as a Christian it's not true, actually. You are not alone. And may God give us the grace to appreciate that and to live in the confidence of it.